0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hey, welcome back to us. It's a brand new edition of The Minefield, the first such edition for 2022. And uh, I'm already relieved, Scott, because I got the year right. This is always my... (laughs) fear when we go into a new year is that I keep referring to the old year as though it's the current year. And Mm. it takes me roughly three or four months to adjust, but I, I got it right. I had to concentrate to get there. I will admit, but I got there. So anyway... Thank you very much for joining us uh, as we embark upon the journey of this new year. Happy New Year to you. I know I said that during the Best Of series, but I'll say it freshly to you now. And uh, this is the show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, Ali is my name. Scott
2: Stevens is my aforementioned co-host. How are you, Scott? Hey, I'm doing very well. I still can't believe, and I know I say this at the beginning of every year, but I really do feel it. I can't believe they let us back. Um, There is something so (laughs) peculiar about this little thing that we do. So so at Uh, what point do you believe? Uh, so, what is this? Is this year seven or eight? I reckon this is eight. I, th- I think you're right. This is year eight. I'm quite sure that's correct. Yeah. Well, it should be sinking in by now. <laughs> Although, you know, I, again, we did have that. We did have that reset. If this were a television show, it would be the one where, you know, all the main characters were killed off at the at the end of the previous season, and a whole new batch of people. Uh, with a new showrunner, a new director has been introduced. A new lighting technique, maybe a new sort of dialogue rhythm. Yep. Uh, so we did have a little bit of a reset last year, moving from the 25-minute on-air version to the hour, or what? What are we? 54 minute. minutes. 54 minutes. There we was go. it. 53 minutes, 58 seconds. Something like that. 50... Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you've come back super precise as well. That's always really encouraging. <laughs> but do do you notice, Willie? Um, and you know, towards the end of uh, of last year. My family and I have this kind of weird tradition on New Year's Eve. We try not to turn on the television until very, very late. We try to break out some board games. And we try at some stage of New Year's Eve to, just to sort of get around and, and you know, what were the most memorable things of the year. Not the best things, not the worst things, but the things that you can't quite shake, the things that will stick with you, the things that when you close your eyes or let your mind relax, uh, your mind kind of gravitates toward. And one of the things that we all discovered as we were talking is that 2020 and 2021 simply in terms of our memory were almost indistinguishable. It was yep. really difficult to keep the goings-on of those separate years straight in our minds. And do you feel differently about no, this year? I mean, do you oh, f- okay, yeah, sorry yeah. about this year. Yes. Uh I think so. Yeah. Well, yeah. you have just travelled, so that might make a few things feel different.
1: I have. Full disclosure, I'm currently jet-lagged, uh, so anything <laughs> might happen. And I find with something like travel, it, that's a real marker. Yeah. Do you, Forgive me for this. I'm going to talk about sport for a second. In the 2020-2021 Premier League season, the games were all played in front of no crowds. Hmm. And... Uh, There were lockdowns for us in Melbourne. There were lockdowns throughout a lot of that and there were lockdowns, I think, in the UK for parts of it. And so I've heard people who follow the game there talk about this phenomenon, which I think speaks to what you're talking about, which is all these games were played and they can remember none of them. Hmm. And they, they, they remember the end result as in they know where their team finished and that sort of thing. But they remember none of them because none of the games were pegged to anything. So you know how um, ordinarily, if it, whatever it is that you're into doing, but in this case going to a football match, th- there are rituals that are associated with that. Yeah. There are things that happen during the week from which the match might become respite or that might point you in the direction of the match to build the anticipation or whatever it is. Suddenly all those things were taken away and so there was nothing – there was no hook for the memories to be attached to and as a result, it all just became this blancmange. And I wonder mm. if, you can, um, if you can extrapolate that, you can analogise from that to much of life really over the past couple of years that it's just been very difficult to grasp anything. It's been mm. a matter of one foot in front of the other – And so all you've seen is feet. Yeah. Um, And and so now, I mean, we are in a very different phase of the pandemic. We're definitely not through it. We are in a very very different phase of it. And that will heavily inform the the conversation we're about to have. But I think it does mean that there are more hooks now. There are more landmarks. There are things that you can draw associations
2: with, I think. Look, I think that's right. I think that's really perceptive. One of the other things, though, that characterized, I think, so much of our – certainly our emotional response to much of what took place in 2020, 2021 was the sense that there's not even a light at the end of the tunnel. All there is is the tunnel. There are the persistent questions, are we there yet? Are we out of the pandemic yet? Uh, when's this going to end? When's life going to return to normal? And, I mean, I was I was quite startled. There are many things about – the social and political responses to the pandemic—that I'll, I'll confess—will fill me with tremendous optimism. I mean, looking back over the last two years, there are things that have genuinely surprised me about the way in which we've rediscovered, maybe it never left, maybe it never went anywhere, maybe it wasn't broken, but we simply rediscovered what I think we can only refer to as the conditions of our common life, Uh, a kind of fundamental fabric, networks of maybe unacknowledged, maybe unseen trust, but trust nonetheless, things that were able to hold us together such that when the moment came, when sacrifice was needed, sacrifices were made. I mean, there is something about that that I find really thrilling, that I find really encouraging. It does say something, I think, about the—how can I refer to this without seeming ridiculous? About the moral tenacity of what George Orwell once called the fabric of common decency. In other words, there are certain things that are simply there. I don't think they're inexorably there. I don't think they're constantly there. I, I do think they can be ripped and rent and broken beyond repair. But we're not there yet. And there is something about a kind of fundamental fabric that that held us together, even when things seemed really, really dark, even when the end of whatever it is, this thing that we were living through was, was out of reach. And I think even though I th- we, we asked questions too early, um, when's the vaccine going to be ready? When's this going to be over? When's normal life going to return? I do think we asked those questions too early. But we stuck with it through those ill-asked or ill-timed or ill-judged questions. And I think one of the things then that has maybe shaken us, maybe left us a little bit emotionally on edge is the fact that the end date, the end point, those moments of respite that we thought may well not just be respite but may be the end or maybe the beginning of the resumption of normal life, that those have continued to recede or disappear uh, into yet another lockdown or yet another, another series of delays or yet another variant. So I think for me, the interesting thing about the last two years has been the way that, and again, this really is going to sound weird, but the way that living without telos, the way that living without an endpoint, without living without a goal that we're all striving towards, the way that that has, I think, brought to some extent the best out of us and also the extent to which that life without telos, that life without goal, has maybe caused some of those emotions that we learned how to live with in the meantime, maybe to become a little bit frayed, maybe to get on edge, such that when certain things have erupted, when those emotions have been given an opportunity to explode, uh, they really have. And they've displayed themselves in ways that really do merit. Uh, serious, well, maybe conversation, but certainly examination.
1: This doesn't sound weird at all. A life without telos is exactly the kind of phrase I'd expect you to use. I'd say we're nearly nine minutes into the year and the minefield bingo board is already half full. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I've, met, I've got way of sports reference. You've decided to discuss telos. We're away. Yeah. Um, I, I hear what you say, but I also wonder if we haven't seen the opposite of what you're describing as well, right? And maybe mm. that's what you're gesturing towards at the very end. So to me, the high point of the the virtues that you're talking about there and the sort of discovery of the thickness of the bonds between people that, that make up a community, the high point of that was really the March 2020 moment, right? Yeah. When we didn't right. know what was coming and people were almost looking forward to going into lockdown, and the all-in-this-together thing was felt real right. for a time, right? Even politicians were adhering to this mantra across party lines, across levels of government, all of that. And I feel like it's been a slow and steady process of decline at that point. I mean, we did shows last year talking about the heat and the friction that surrounds the issue of vaccination and vaccination yeah. mandates, for example. And we basically did a show whose topic was for all intents and purposes, is it right just to treat uh, anti-vaxxers as though they're animals? Really? Mm. I mean, mm. we put nicer mm. language around it, but that's basically... Yeah. So, so the fact that those sorts of questions were being raised, I think tells you something of the fraying that that you're talking about. But I think it leads us to what's happened over the summer while we mm. haven't been doing new shows. That I think has been really interesting to watch because when that fraying keeps happening, eventually there comes a case that allows us to give it full expression. And I think there were two such cases over the the Australian summer, weren't there? Um, One was here, although very much international in its scope and its attention. And that Mm. was the case or the saga, I think we have to say, (laughs) actually have to use that word, of the Novak Djokovic visa. (laughs)
2: We, and, well, we can't call it an affair. See, I love. No, I,
1: I don't like saga. I love affair. I, I'm with you, but I think this is a saga rather than. It's an bigger affair. than that.
2: Okay, okay, yeah.
1: Fair because it, there were just so many. I mean, what's happening? Is this happening? Or this bit of information? That bit of information? The build up to the decision, then the build up to the new decision, then the. It was. It was a saga. So I found the Djokovic saga really fascinating to watch, albeit I was watching it from overseas. Yeah, uh, Maybe that's what made it interesting as well because you yes, saw that I, it was I think story. so.
2: I think so. That's interesting.
1: And I found it fascinating because I couldn't escape my ambivalence. Ambivalence is not the right word. I couldn't escape the ambiguities that surrounded it because, and I'm happy to go into this in more detail later, but just to mark out the territory, because in the end, the federal government in cancelling his visa, I think was left with no other decision Mm-hmm. because of the rules of the road that had been built in Australia over the past two years. right? Yep. That is, it couldn't allow an exception to a rule and the idea that the visa application itself was misleading gave the government really, A, an excuse, but B, no other choice but to say you can't be an exception to this rule. But then at the same time, and this is the bit where I might run into trouble with people, I couldn't avoid the idea that this was a controversy that was created in the service of a stupid rule. And so there was this thing going on for me where it was like rules were rules, even if they're stupid. And so (laughs) did that need to be observed? But what was interesting as in, in, do rules need to be observed even if they're a bit silly? Um, And I think the answer in the end is probably yes, especially in a situation where you're talking about the mutual sacrifice that, that you've been describing. Yeah. But what's interesting about it was I think The level of resentment that was building directed Djokovic's way on the basis that there's a rule for him and a different rule for everybody else, which I don't think is actually an accurate description of the circumstances. But nonetheless – Maybe
2: not, but maybe.
1: But it certainly has an instinctive appeal uh, and it appears true on the surface at the very least. The other example from this is the Boris Johnson affair and I think you would probably call this an affair right because
2: it has so many different episodes okay but hang on before we get to boris johnson yeah and i really do want to get to boris johnson okay there are a number of things there are vast differences between these two sagas or affairs affairs. no the saga and the affair there's a vast difference between them they are thematically related though (laughs) they are thematically related insofar as both of them have elicited have excited have whipped up expressions or degrees or displays of public emotion that I think are really that are that are morally as well as democratically interesting. But can we just take a step back to Djokovic for a moment? And I'll confess to you, Walid. If we had to devote the first show of the year to Djokovic, I mean, that's almost a line in the sand for me. That's, <laughs> I find find yourself another co-host. Okay. Uh, so you know, just just to get me on board, we had to throw in Boris. Um, but one thing <laughs> I like, that's not quite sorry, true. Boris was the saving <laughs> grace. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're we're screwed. <laughs> okay. um, but but there is something that's kind of interesting here. You said in your description of what took place surrounding Djokovic. That the government had worked itself into a position where rules simply had to be followed and an exception couldn't be made. And I think what's interesting at that point is you could say on the one hand, if you wanted to give this the worst possible presentation, cast this in the worst possible light, you could say that that kind of border absolutism has been the thing that has characterized Australia's border policy for the better part of the last two decades, and yes. that the inability to make certain decisions in the face of, say, humanity in, in dire straits or humanity suffering in extremis, the inability to move the rules, to relax the rules, to simply attend to another human being in dire circumstances, that that has been one of the blight on Australia's uh, national character and its uh, immigration policies.
1: Also, but Also, think, we must add to that, the internal immigration policies of the country during the pandemic. Yes. So the hard state borders and the many hard cases that, that popped up through
2: that. Yes, and, and the inability then of Australians overseas to return yeah. as well. Yeah. During, so, I mean, all of these things, I think, are wide open to severe... Severe ethical scrutiny. But also are clear
1: political winners, as we're probably seeing in Western Australia right now. That's right. But also, I, I remember saying this at some point, and I still think it holds, that no Australian leader in, of any government at any level has suffered politically from
2: a closed border. Yeah. In the case of Djokovic, however, this is where I'm, I'm really torn. You say that it's a stupid rule that was followed. uh, And it's a stupid rule that maybe had to be followed for fear of, well, whatever comes next. But I think in this particular case, I guess I go back to this idea of the way that we rediscovered something like a shared moral substance, a shared civic fabric, whereby we were able to rise to the challenge when moments of sacrifice were demanded of us. And the thing that sustains that Are I think what can only be called political rituals that are designed to shore up, to win back, to reaffirm social trust. And as soon as there's a moment of betrayal, or as soon as, say, uh, a politician doesn't seem to be following the rules that everybody else is expected to follow, or when preferential treatment is given to some and then denied others, that becomes one of those moments where opportunities to win back or to reaffirm public faith are torn, are ruined, so that the next moment that something like sacrifice is required from people, sacrifice will be less forthcoming. And it it seems to me that what was remarkable about the decision to cancel Djokovic's visa twice, to detain him, and ultimately to, to deport him, what was remarkable about that is that the language that was used, the justification that was given, particularly the public justification that was given, is one rule needs to apply to all of us. There is one rule for all of us, even though, and it's been fascinating listening to international media about the Djokovic affair, or the Djokovic saga, uh, it made Australia into a laughingstock. It opened well, up only Australia... only kind of, actually. Only kind of, but it still made Australia seem really, really strange, whereas to my mind... There was something incredibly noble. There was something undeniably important about that decision being made. And that decision being made as a matter of principle, there is one rule that applies to everybody. And at this delicate moment in the story of this pandemic... That rule needs to be reaffirmed. It needs to be reaffirmed publicly. That's why I just don't quite buy this alibi or this explanation that's been given by some people that Djokovic has been made into something like a social pressure release valve or a scapegoat uh, that, you know, all of people's anxiety and anger and fear and consternation and inconvenience, uh, this has all been heaped on Djokovic's head and he's been now sent out of the country. I think the worst of all scenarios would be for something that resembled preferential treatment to be given To a superstar, while the rest of people who are lining up to get into the Australian Open or who struggled to get across state borders, who couldn't re-enter the country, uh, while they are still in living memory of the sacrifices that they had to bear. To my mind, this is is a kind of – this is a noble decision. There's something about this that I think is eminently justified. So I see your argument.
1: I feel like it's more of a 2021 argument than a 2022 argument. Because the genuine special treatment, if you want to call it that, and I'm not entirely sure that's what I would call it, but the genuine special treatment that people like Novak Djokovic received was the previous year when they were allowed into the country at all. Yeah, Right. True. In the same way as you could argue uh, AFL footballers who were allowed into Queensland received that treatment and then some of them who, that was in 2020, and then in 2021 were allowed into WA, and our role players, similarly, you had this narrative that sports players, athletes, got all this special treatment. Now, I don't think that's quite accurate yeah, in a strictly true. analytical sense, but I do understand the emotion of it. I think this is different from the Boris Johnson thing, because the Boris Johnson thing is him and his fellow travellers, people in his government, and it begins really with Dominic Cummings, his advisor, who helped draw up the lockdown laws back in 2020, violating their own rules. And that is a different – I think that is where the idea of the rules have to apply the same to everybody. I think that comes into much sharper focus in the Boris Johnson case. I agree. Than it does in the Djokovic case. The Djokovic case was interesting to me because even though I think in the end the decision was the only justifiable decision to reach in all the circumstances, there was something about it that was inflected with a kind of envy that I don't think was placed fully correctly.
0: Hmm,
2: interesting.
1: And I think it is possible to reach what is the only correct in the end decision for reasons that are not entirely correct. And I think that's probably what happened in that
2: case. So let's just, before we transition to our guest, I'm so excited about our guest, by the way. (laughs) But I think you actually hold out something interesting. There was an intensity of, on the part of the public, in their response to the Djokovic saga. And I do think that emotions, especially emotions that are tinged with a degree of moral judgment, with a certain moral sentiment to it, this is unfair, this is not right, the right thing to do, we have an obligation to, you know, all of those, all of those feelings. Mm. Emotions can point us in the right direction. They can also cloud our judgment. And I mean, something that you pointed out in some of the messages we exchanged in the lead up to this show is whether Djokovic's reputation, his rather unsavory and generally unlikable character, did that taint, did that tinge, did that cloud people's ability to see this situation clearly? Or did it give them license? Did it give them further justification to want to see the end of him, uh, to want to see him deported? So, uh, I mean, emotions can tell the truth, but they can also consign us to a condition, I think, of inarticulacy unless we really do interrogate those emotions. They can also give What's
1: expression in... to base desire. Yes, I think that's right. Rather Absolutely. than to any kind of high virtue. They can do both. And yeah, I think yeah. the, the thing is to be vigilant about that and spot which is
2: which. I think that's, that, that's right. And, and those two things, the nobility and the baseness, they can also very frequently, as anybody who has reflected on their emotions for a second will attest, they can be mixed kind of promiscuously. These things can all be bundled up. The thing that's been so impressive to me, I think, about the outrage in the UK over the last two months that have greeted the revelations and then that have exposed the falsity of some of the explanations that were given Mm. of no less, possibly as many as 16 parties or gatherings or drinking parties that have been held uh, either at Number 10 Downing Street or at related government offices... The idea that this was, in fact, something like a betrayal, that at the very moment that the, the leaders who framed the laws were telling us how much sacrifices, even painful sacrifices, knowing that our loved ones had to die alone— because of mm. COVID laws, because of lockdown laws. At the same time, these people are taking us for fools by gathering in basements, by going down to the bottle shop and bringing back suitcases of booze. For by their work meetings. Yeah. For their work meetings, by giggling about it during mock press conferences. There's something about the purity, the lucidity of that anger that I think really goes straight to the heart of what was at stake across 2020 and 2021, the depth, the richness, the fineness of the social fabric that was being relied upon, Mm. but also the extent to which this degree of official hypocrisy probably tips over from being something like mere hypocrisy to something far more like betrayal. You, you played on intimacy you play it on togetherness, and then you do this behind our mm. back. I think, unlike the Djokovic affair, there's something about this degree of public anger that taps into a profoundly democratic sentiment uh, that maybe does point us to something of great value, maybe does point us to something like the truth.
1: Agreed. There you go. We broke another Mardfield tradition. Wow. Sinead's upset. That is a minefield (laughs) tradition. Um, It's time to get to the reset. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following
2: The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Victoria McGeer is senior research scholar and lecturer in the Center for Human Values at Princeton University. She's also professor of philosophy at Australian National University. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us on the Mindfield. Thanks for being our opening guest for the new year.
0: Such a great pleasure, Scott and Walid. It's such an honour to be here at your opening session, and my goodness, you've given us something to think about today.
1: Um, Victoria, I have to begin by clarifying something, because it says on my screen, by way of brackets after your name, that I'm allowed to call you Tory. But in the circumstances of the case with Boris Johnson being at the centre of this, I wonder if (laughs) that's that's a wise thing to do.
0: I know. I'm really reluctant to use my nickname in these sorts of occasions precisely for those reasons. I couldn't believe my parents, who were staunch liberals, would give me such a ridiculous nickname. But there you go. Sorry. What can I do?
1: All right. I'll shorten it to Vic if I need to
2: shorten it, for any reason. <laughs> yeah. well, well, look, Victoria, let's, let's just start with where we left off, which is essentially that we have these two figures that are either admired or profoundly disliked sometimes both, for their own particular reasons, both of whom have been at the center of really quite intense public responses. And I don't think we want to engage in anything like mass psychology here, that there's been kind of some spontaneous movement that's all led people in the same direction. There's something about the intensity of the public response. There's something about the emotion that's been poured out in both circumstances that I think is believable. I think it's reasonable. Uh, it may well not be as articulate as we would hope. It may well not be as lucid. It may well be compromised or, 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 or dirtied or tainted by certain base affects, as, as Walid was mentioning before. But I think there's something here that it's worthwhile becoming as articulate as we can about it for no other reason than I think the more articulate we become about the moral emotions, the better we're able to spot when those emotions maybe lead us astray. So you've heard what Walid and I have said. We don't want to conflate necessarily these two cases, but where do you think we ought to go from here? What emotions, especially morally tainted or morally tinged emotions, do you think we've been seeing at work over the last two months?
0: Yeah, it's a very complicated question, isn't it? Because as you say, I mean, this is coming on the tail of two very... Intense years emotionally in some ways, intense because they've kind of supported quite a different range of emotions than we make feel in ordinary life. A lot of anxiety, a lot of boredom, you know, being under these continual lockdowns and uncertainty about what's going to happen. And that's kind of the backdrop to um, what we're seeing going on now. So I think these emotions have to be, or the emotional responses that we're seeing have to be understood in that context. And might, that might also account for part of the kind of strength of them, uh, the kind of readiness to feel, as you say, betrayed, to feel outraged, to feel all these things that uh, you've been highlighting um, in your discussion so far. But nonetheless, I do think it's important and you raise the right sort of question that we should think about, you know, our emotional reactions what's prompting them, what's making them so particularly strong in these cases, whether they're well targeted, and whether or not they're obscuring other emotions we should be feeling. Because one thing that's interesting about emotional reactions, while they can tune us into important and salient things about the world that we should be paying attention to, they can also crowd out other emotions. That perhaps we should be feeling tuned into other aspects of the situation that we're not paying attention to because of the way the initial emotional response is sort of crowding out those other emotions.
1: And so then it becomes a question of passing, doesn't it? You know, which responses are laudable uh, and which are not, which are to be resisted and so on. And to what extent are they blinding us rather than allowing us to see? Um, So let's begin with uh, I don't know, just sort of laying out the, the terrain first. You, would you agree with us that the Boris Johnson affair is a far simpler case because that is one of reasonably distilled and well-targeted anger and dismay at a, a, a political hypocrisy that undermines the very social fabric that's necessary in order to handle something like a pandemic? Is that is that more of a clear-cut case?
0: I think I think it is. I mean, I think you put on your finger on exactly why. I mean, here are these politicians who are laying down the rules that all of us have been trying to follow to the best of our ability, and there they are breaking them themselves. You know, that's just uh, kind of exactly this kind of thing that does and should prompt a certain degree of outrage. And, you know... Fueling this effort, we have to call people to account for the things that they shouldn't be doing, particularly when they're in positions of power. So I think that it, I agree with you completely about that. I think that's a much clearer cut case than the than the Djokovic affair or saga. Saga,
2: saga. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me call you Tory, Victoria.
0: Um, yeah. Okay. So can I just say, just
2: uh, at the risk of, of of muddying the waters, however. I do agree that the Boris Johnson affair is, in many respects, a much simpler, a much clearer one. But I do still think it's worthwhile working out just what it is that is being expressed, that is being displayed by the public in response. I mean, it is, it is curious to me, for instance, and I've, I've been sort of turning a few kind of morally laden emotions around in my mind, thinking what, what is it exactly that fits here? And the thing that I kept coming back to, and it surprised me, I'll confess, was betrayal. Because usually betrayal, and here I'm I'm profoundly guided by someone like Avishai Margalit, who who insisted that you can't have a betrayal unless you have a thick relationship. Uh, um, There's something about betrayal that presumes a prior intimacy. Um, You wouldn't describe someone you barely know or even a remote friend or even a friend necessarily as betraying you unless this person has been invested with a high degree of trust or even intimacy. But it seems to me, especially in those early months of the pandemic, as the as especially those citizens in aged care facilities, as the death toll was beginning to tick up, as the nature of the sacrifice that was needing to be made began to take shape. There was something like a democratic intimacy that was being called upon. We really do need to come together. We need to care for one another over and above the call of duty, uh, over and above what might ordinarily be expected. And then this notion that those who are calling for the sacrifice are laughing at us behind our backs, laughing at us in closed rooms. I, I, I do mean literally laughing at us. Uh, and are refusing to make those same sacrifices, there is that same note of a kind of crushed intimacy or, or traded upon intimacy that I find really, really interesting. I, I, I didn't think that modern democracies were capable of that kind of tenacity, that kind of thickness, it, that kind of th- intimacy. Don't but I, you
1: think that charges of betrayal are directed at politicians all the time? I mean, I, I yes. take your point about the, the thickness of the bond.
2: No, well, that's exactly the point. We use that term way too easily. So you think it's misused or? Yes, absolutely. And this is this is one of the clearest instances I've seen in modern times. Uh, certainly in living memory, of an actual betrayal of public trust and confidence. And and what's then given that betrayal its force, its power, its heat, is that it's married with or it's coupled with what I think we can call democratic resentment. In other words, the people who are above us, the elites, the people who have privileges that we don't, who have access to power that we don't, they are taking us for fools, um, and when you put those two things together, the intimacy that's bound up with betrayal and then the sense that these people are looking down on us and giggling at us, when, when betrayal gets married to democratic resentment, that then becomes a firestorm. Um, what do you think, Victoria? Does that, is that hitting on anything?
0: I think I agree with you, Scott. I mean, I do think there's something very personal about this feeling of resentment or indignation at what's been going on with Johnson and his colleagues in in England. And I think it's precisely because, as you point out, these have been unusual times. I mean, in more ordinary times when politicians, quote unquote, betray the public trust or betray our trust, we have a sort of cynicism about that. Well, Mm. that's sort of business as usual. I mean, and that's worrisome that we have such a feeling of cynicism about politicians in our day and age. But I think what was so remarkable about this, these COVID times, is that we let that cynicism disappear for a while. I mean, it became overwhelmed by these other feelings of, as you say, we're all in this together. There's something very leveling about this pandemic. You know, we've all got to pull together. We've got to make this work. We're in dark times. It's only by sacrifice that we're going to get through this and through this well. So I think there was a real creation of a kind of more intimate bond with other people in our society, with our politicians. And you could see that also, I think, in the way that the politicians from across party lines really came together. And that was a very encouraging moment, I think, for all of us to see our politicians pull together like this and creating this kind of democratic community that is is a sort of more intimate, Uh, experience, and hence why I think we see this kind of outrage and indignation and real sense of of personal betrayal with the Boris Johnson affair.
1: Less so does that describe the UK, though, all along, really? I mean, the the UK government kept changing its position early on, didn't it? You you had these sort of rogue statements about herd immunity from the very beginning, Boris Johnson boasting about shaking hands with COVID-positive patients, then getting COVID himself. Um, you had the NHS running off to sports equipment stores to find snorkels to make makeshift ventilators. All of this was kind of going on. The, the mishandling of the pandemic was from the very start, really. And then, as I mentioned before, the Dominic Cummings case, where he's found to be violating the rules that he's helped design. I mean, that that goes back
2: to to a castle.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So speaking of the blending of years, was that 2020 or 2021? I think it was late 2020. It certainly happened in 2020, and then I think it was discovered in late 2020, at which point you have people who were involved with the pandemic response saying that was the news that killed it because Mm. once that came out, people just said, well, we don't need to comply anymore. And so compliance with with these rules was low. So in in some ways, the Boris Johnson case, although it's a clearer case – it's also in some ways less significant because it really confirms what had already been underway through, for quite a long time in the UK. The Djokovic case, I think, is interesting because, um, as I've kind of flagged before, I think it admits of more complicated, sometimes less noble motivations. And I wonder if what happened with Djokovic was finally what came along was the case that allowed the funnelling of all of these frustrations. Yes, there was the you've got to follow the rules and the fact that you have a visa application with mistakes at the very best and lies at worst on it um, makes it much easier to, to respond to it in the way that, that you might want to. But here was a wealthy, very successful, to many people, unlikable foreigner. All of those things converged and were embodied in this one case. It was different to the AFL or the NRL footballer, even though those cases did inspire consternation, particularly from the arts sector, right? Why does sport get this when we don't Mm -hmm. was the argument. But all along, I feel like at each of these stages, there is something that is not of good grace going on. There's something that, um, it's not that every argument made in support of this is specious, but Some of them are, and what seems to be at the heart of it is, why do they get to do this when I don't? And I wonder if that's a dangerous touchstone to introduce into our public life, that rather than, all right, let's consider whether or not there are different circumstances for different people, we respond with, I'm suffering, therefore I want you to suffer, even if there's a good case for you not to in this particular circumstance or even if you are epidemiologically different, as I think you could argue for a lot of these sporting examples, because of the restrictions that get placed, the the extra conditions that get placed upon entry, right? So, um, you know, the way that footballers who went to Queensland had to live in a bubble that meant that they were at much greater restriction than the rest of Queensland society at that time, even if some of them broke it. Nonetheless, they were the rules that attended. They had to arrange their own and pay for their own quarantine arrangements, which, yes, they were able to do because they were backed by a big body like, for example, the AFL that could do this. But nonetheless, this made things epidemiologically different, which meant that a different judgment made at the very least scientific sense. So what we were left with really, I think, was a claim that was something along the lines of, if I can't cross a border, then no one should. And if stuff is being shut down, then everything should be shut down. There should be no exceptions, no matter how much effort goes into or what what conditions are put around the making of those exceptions. And I I worry a little bit about this. So in the Djokovic case, I said it was a silly rule. What I found silly about it was Australia was a country running at 80,000 cases a day. And we were putting in rules about unvaccinated people coming into the country because what, we think they might add a bit more to that? It just seemed like a very, very strange thing. So silly rule. The rule in the end had to be followed. But at the same time, the undertone of there cannot be one rule for him and one rule for another felt strange to me given that he would have been, at least correct me if I'm wrong, he would have been under a series of restrictions that would have been very different to what anybody else in the situation who who was coming into Australia would have received or been under. And so that strikes me as as a tone of envy rather than a tone of solidarity. And I think that, that's importantly different, Victoria.
0: Yeah, good. Um, I agree with you. I think the Djokovic case is much more complicated. Uh, you, you might be right. I mean, envy can often kind of work its way into these otherwise moralized emotions of resentment or indignation, which, which can be properly felt at time. But I think I'm not totally comfortable with the idea that envy is part of this. What I'm really more worried about myself is the way that, that we can have sort of superficial reactions to situations when they're framed in a particular way. And I think that politicians can be very good at this sort of framing to kind of whip up certain very predictable, perhaps not even totally mistargeted emotions. But what's dangerous about them is they are distracting us from looking at the situation in a more nuanced way. As you point out, Walid. we should be asking why do we have these rules? Are we really doing the right thing in terms of our border control and border policies? To ask us to take a more in-depth look at these sorts of situations and these policies rather than just kind of whipping up that emotion that can come so easily through mantras such as rules or we rules and one rule for all, and no one should be allowed to break the rules, especially if they're a celebrity, no special treatment. I mean, it's very, it's true that uh, resentment or outrage or some sort of indignation is an appropriate response if that is all the situation involves. But I think it's a much more complicated situation. And that's the real problem here.
1: We are listening to The Mindfield. That voice belongs to Victoria McGee, who teaches philosophy at Princeton University and the Australian National University. Waleed well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co host.
2: I'm not quite as convinced, Waleed and Victoria. Yes. I mean, there is something interesting. About naming some of what has been expressed at least as envy. I mean, the way that I understand envy is when, Waleed, you said, if I can't have it, then they shouldn't be able to have it either. There is something willfully nihilistic about envy. It doesn't want a changing of places. It doesn't want, I don't want what they have. That would be something more like garden variety jealousy. Envy is... I reject the idea of privilege as such. I simply want to tear that down. So for instance, uh, uh, Iago in Shakespeare Othello is the famous embodiment of envy. It's not that he wants to be Othello. He simply hates the very idea of privilege, uh, the fact that Othello has beautiful Desdemona. Um, He doesn't want Desdemona necessarily, but he certainly doesn't want Othello. To have her. Where where you find yourself praying that someone else's blessings are taken from them. Exactly, exactly. I I would say, for instance, that the January 6th demonstrations, riots, violence on the steps of the US Capitol, that looks to me like envy. That is the desire to tear down privilege authority as such, um, not the desire to be in in their place. So I think there is something kind of willfully destructive, perhaps even self-destructive, about envy. I'm not, I mean, I think there's something kind of interesting about that. If we were to put that frame on the Djokovic saga, I'm not quite so sure about that. I I, I guess what I would want to see is if we reverse the situation and an exception was in fact made, And the federal government did, in fact, give all the explanations, give all the nuances to why this exception was made, even though he's unvaccinated, even though he either lied or misled on his visa application form, even though there was a kind of presumptuousness uh, in his arrival in Australia in the first place, even though he's been quite vocal in anti-vaccination or vaccine skeptic messages. I mean, what would the public reaction would have been? had the counterfactual been the case. And I think there would have been a very, very good case and probably some justification for people feeling a fair degree of indignation. So hang on, you're not making an exception when people are drowning and languishing at sea. Hang on, you're not willing to make an uh, an exception when a a loved one in a detention center uh, is gravely ill or it may well be having suicidal ideation. Hang on, you're not willing to make an exception. So I, I, I think as... As strange and maybe even as ham-fisted as it is, there is something important for the public trust in the carrying through with this kind of border consistency, especially at this pivotal moment in the midst of an Omicron outbreak. Um, There is something about that that I think if, if we see the object, if we see the audience of it, not base desires or not base envy, but rather shoring up the public trust, there's There's something in that that's justifiable, isn't
0: there? I do see what you mean. If envy is the sort of idea that if I can't have it, you shouldn't have it either. Uh, you know, you can see that may be a sort of component to this this nasty brew of emotions that's come up. But I also agree with Scott that there is something legitimate about this sort of resentment and indignation and so on, the thought that we can't make exceptions for celebrities merely because they're celebrities. I mean, this is, this is just not how rules should be administered. And I think that's a fair enough emotion. What I still worry about is the way that these emotions can be so easily whipped up by politicians to obscure this kind of deeper issue. To not make us look at these questions that you raised, Waleed, about whether or not this is a stupid rule, whether or not we shouldn't be looking at the rules that we now have. And if you think about ways of um, shoring up public trust, which is a legitimate issue that Scott raises, if you compare something like the kind of rules are rules, there are no exceptions should be made kind of mantra that is, is being currently played in the political arena versus something like, the sorry moment. Now that is a way of a kind of getting solidarity in the community and restoring public trust that has a much different tenor, a much different tone. It's one that kind of opens up dialogue. It makes us think about the kind of country one we want to live in. Whereas the kind of rules are rules mantra does not. It's Hmm. a kind of closing down.
1: Yeah, and you talk about the questions that are being obscured. I would add to that the questions that Scott is asking about the treatment of um, refugees and asylum seekers, for example. And that did come up. I mean, you know, it would be remiss to to pretend that that never came up. But um, in some ways, you're right, Scott, that in order for that to be preserved – the judgment against Djokovic had to be harsh. But in policy terms, they are very different things, right? Yes, they are. One is making a policy for epidemiological purposes. The other is making a policy for the purposes of deterrence. Now, you may hate or love those policies variously, but they are different. They have different ends. And so we shouldn't be surprised if they would have different expressions. I suppose my Mm -hmm. point about the Djokovic rule was, even on epidemiological terms, it didn't seem to make any sense. To allow an unvaccinated person in when you're running tens of thousands of cases a day while they're going to be under restrictions that other people are not um, and not freely mixing in the community just seems nuts. Like I just don't, yeah. Someone might. There might be an epidemiologist who can explain that to me, but I've not heard an explanation that makes any sense with regards no, to that. No, and,
2: and look, just, a, just the one very brief thing to, to add. I, I think it is worth pointing out, and, you know, Victoria, I accept entirely what you were saying about the danger of politicians whipping up emotions, capitalising on those emotions, much less weaponizing emotions. In the Djokovic case, there was a very clear signal early on that the federal government didn't want to have anything to do with the Djokovic saga, that it began as a state issue. There was then a falling between the cracks in the gap between state and border security. That I think it's at that point that public emotion really begins to ramp up. And at that point, the federal government had to respond. Um, so if, if you like, there was a kind of answerability, there was a responsiveness to public emotion rather than a desire necessarily to capitalise. Would you say an honouring of public emotion? An honouring. I think that's that's probably right. And it's interesting to me, Willie, that the reason that was then given by the immigration minister uh, that was heard before the court wasn't so much an epidemiological danger or threat, but rather that Djokovic's outspokenness uh, in being skeptical concerning vaccines, could then be emulated. Uh, sorry, em- mm. could then be emulated uh, by those who have a tendency, maybe, to be similarly skeptical. So, I mean, there, there is a. I, I'm, I'm not sure how much sort of good faith we want to accord that, but I think, I don't know. I I, I see this as really, really, really complicated, and I find it very difficult. Policy terms, legal terms, and ethical terms i find it very difficult to find fault with the government's decision can
1: can i let me leave this then with one broader question for victoria victoria do you think it is justifiable in fact necessary for a government to make a decision even if that decision let's just assume the decisions epidemiologically unnecessary for the sake of the argument so even if the decision is questionable is it right that they make it for the sake of preserving an overall public ethic of respect for the rules that are going to be necessary in order to get through something like a pandemic.
0: Yeah, I mean I I think I agree with both of you that I don't think they could have done anything else at this situation. I guess what I am interested in thinking about and I and the reason why you've wanted me to come in and talk about these things is that we do need to be wary about what are the emotions that we're feeling under these circumstances. What makes them justified? When are they reasonable? And more importantly, what are they maybe distracting us from? I mean, emotions are wonderful things. We would be lost without them. They are tuning us into important and salient facts about the world, things that we need to pay attention to, things that are important for our well-being, our survival. But as you point out, they can be, they can be excessive, they can be mistargeted, they can be obscuring. And these are the things that we need to be worried about when we're having very strong emotional reactions. We've had a lo- lovely, rich discussion about this Djokovic affair, Djokovic saga, excuse me, <laughs> and brought many aspects of it to light. But if we just rested with the idea that, ah, oh, you know, he was trying to break the rules, I'm feeling indignant outraged, Thank heavens, the government has stepped in and stood by the rules. Good, the affair is over, saga is over. Um, you know, we would be missing an opportunity, I think. Mm. Uh, Just feeling that kind of emotional satisfaction isn't sufficient, that we really need to think more deeply about these situations that give rise to these very strong emotions and just be a little more self-questioning about why we're we're experiencing them and whether or not they're really well-targeted or whether or not they may be obscuring things about the situation that we should think more deeply about.
1: And is politics a forum that is capable of reflecting on those emotions and telling the difference?
0: Well, thankfully, we have shows like this,
1: which remind <laughs> us. Oh, God, we're doomed. We are
0: doomed. <laughs> but, it's more than just the headlines that we read in the newspaper. But I think it's a, it's a um, you know, it's something that isn't put on all of us especially when we're having strong emotions, especially when those are things to public events where we don't know all the details Mm. and we may haven't perhaps thought in a very deep way about the policies behind it. You know, that's a moment in which just, you know, just sort of say, wow, that's a strong emotion I'm having here. Mm. Why is that really? Is it really justified under these circumstances? Maybe I should think very more about this sort of situation and, and what's what's brought on this
1: sort of emotion there's a lot of wisdom in that Victoria so thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us alas we have no time for any more wisdom <laughs> so you're going to have to stop talking now um, we have to, but, um, Really I appreciate. coffee it. yes indeed
0: uh, Victoria <laughs> McGear
1: is a senior research scholar in the university centre for human values at Princeton University and professor of philosophy at the Australian National University our guest for the first edition of the Mind Field for 2022 what a way to start we'll see you next week